Welcome back. This is episode 41 of the Get In My Garden podcast, and I'm Aaron Moskowitz. Today we have a much-anticipated episode with Melanie Kirby, who you may have seen on Instagram TV or in any of the short videos I shared on social media recently. We met at her land up in the mountain village called Truchas, New Mexico, where she and her partner have their mother breeder colonies and sell queen bees from their business Zia Queen Bees. She is a bee researcher testing out bees in different bioregions while working on her graduate degree at the famed Washington State University Honey Bee Research Laboratory. She talks about the modern business of pollinator bees we depend on to pollinate our food crops. We then learn about her queen breeding program, nicknamed Bees as Seeds, with the purpose of breeding more resilient honeybees. She mentions the different subspecies of American bees and much, much more. Melanie talks about how she uses a non-intrusive tracking system technology she helped create to document and understand the adaptations of honeybees. She will be taking her work to Spain for 10 months from November 2019 through July 2020 as winner of the Fulbright National Geographic Storytelling Fellowship. You can reach Melanie directly at ziaqueenbees at hotmail.com. And if you'd like to support the show, share your favorite episodes on social media and please follow me on Instagram at getinmygarden. Thank you so much to all of you who have reached out to me directly via social media and on the website. I'm so grateful to you all for your support. The new website is up at getinmygarden.com, and it's a great way to connect with specific feedback or ideas for future shows. I love hearing from listeners. So we're out here by the beehives, and I'm hoping that it will sound great with the wind. If not, I know I'll catch you in the future. Yeah. You're working on so many awesome projects. I do have a lot of questions about your research. So firstly, can you tell us a little bit about your background, how you ended up with a bee breeding business? I can't even say it. <laughs> um... The BBB, yes. My name is Melanie Kirby, and I'm originally from uh, southern New Mexico, Las Cruces, um, and Tortugas Pueblo, uh, on my mother's heritage side. And um, I ended up going to school at St. John's in Santa Fe, and I always knew I wanted to do the Peace Corps because my mother had done the Peace Corps. And I had the most sort of serendipitous assignment of being put into beekeeping extension and stationed in Paraguay in South America. And so that was my introduction to beekeeping. I knew nothing about it beforehand. But that really sort of introduced me to the world of pollinators and um, animal husbandry and also working with wild and seemingly fierce yet very gentle and industrious creatures. And that just really was so fascinating to me. But yeah, so that was my first introduction to it. And then I went on from there to work for several commercial beekeeping operations, predominantly queen production. I was on the big island of Hawaii for about five years and worked for um, two different outfits out there, which is really what kind of got me more nuanced with just the process of rearing queens. And then I missed New Mexico and the green chili. And so, of course, I came back and, um, yeah, I can understand and got that. my bearings again. And I uh, found a job actually working for a migratory beekeeper in Florida named Gary Oreskovich. Um, runs Honeyland Farms between Wisconsin and Florida. And I happened to work for him at his Florida base. And while working for him, it's where I met Mark Spitzig, who is my farm partner. And he's from Upper Peninsula, Michigan. And so Mark had been doing honey production for five years and just sold it all to the local co-op up in Marquette, Michigan. I had this queenering experience from working for these various operations. And so we took his, you know, his story was really awesome. He started with a couple hives, two books and a friend, a couple friends. And then as the, you know, few years went by, next thing you know, it's the friends moved on to other activities, but he still had these hives and now he had five units 
you know, seven units, 11, and then 17 units of he didn't know what, and swarms were hanging from trees, and he was like, I need to go work for a professional. Wow. And so he ended up going to work for this guy, Gary. Um, so we ended up meeting there, but when I met him, he had 50 hives, and so then with the queen ring experience and his honey production um, that he had already been doing for a number of years, we were able to double the numbers, and we had this really, like, oh, if life was so easy, right, sort of plan, which was, well, you're from Michigan, I'm from New Mexico, why don't we split the time in each place? Mm -hmm. And I had never kept bees in my home state because I'm not from a beekeeping or farming family. But um, so we both learned together. I was able to convince him to bring half of them here, and we used to go back and forth a little bit, and then it became really apparent that the New Mexico sunshine, and we were able to really learn about the microclimates in northern New Mexico by living in Velarde for a few years, then Dixon, and then um, in the canyon, and then now up on the mountain now for 11. So it really gave us some insight as to the sort of little pollination loop that we could do and um, test our bees out at different sort of bioregions, mm-hmm. and then um, and also capture different stock that's acclimating in different sites. How does that work? So you have... How do you identify different stock and how do you, like, can you explain the research process? Yes. So I'm going to take you on a little historical journey. I'll try to keep it brief, but succinct. Dr. Shepard is my advisor and he's at Washington State University. So I'll talk a little bit more about him and his lab and the cool stuff we're doing there and why I decided to, to pursue a graduate degree there after being in the field for 20 years. Yeah, my little my journey, personal journey with beekeeping and bee breeding really came about as I was becoming more familiar with the New Mexico landscape for keeping bees. The challenges, I call it the, you know, it's the land of enchantment, but it's the land of diversity and adversity. It really, um, it really became apparent to me that not all bees are the same. So historically speaking, Dr. Shepard is the one who has has a lovely presentation with all this information. There's 28 recognized subspecies of honeybees, and so they're all able to mate with each other. So like people, there are different races, and they're what we call ecotypes. So some have evolved to, um, are better suited for being up in the mountains, others for being, you know, in a Mediterranean climate or in the desert. Um, it, it really depends. So there's a, all different sorts, and the most common ones that you see here in the U.S. today, like over the years different ones were brought in but then in the 20s they actually shut the border due to what they call the isle of white disease which um was tracheal mite at the time you know initially you know pilgrims bought some over you know perhaps the spanish did as well which i'll talk about my my upcoming sort of historical research into that and then you know then it became very uh, apparent that these bees were adapting and they could sort of quote unquote spawn themselves here mm-hmm. and so then imports weren't that big for a while and then the invention of the steamboat came along and then we had another influx of some bees but in the 20s they shut the borders because of this isle of white disease and so that law is still in effect to this day so you're not allowed to actually bring any bees in or out of this country. Um, Or, I mean, sorry, they can go out of the country, but you can't bring them in unless you are, you know, certified researcher and you have to have a USDA quarantine yard and various different steps in place. And so because of that, what has happened is a little bit of the melting pot for sure. I mean, so I, I really... It hits home with me to, to describe the honeybees as being immigrants to this country, just like many of our citizens are, and how industrious they've 
become and, and to the point that they're, you know, the number one relied upon pollinator, um, which is good and bad to a certain extent. I mean, they're they're definitely overtaxed and stressed to a certain degree, but they're also very effective. Mm-hmm. But there is a reason and a need for us to really promote biodiversity and having various pollinator species. That's very important. So are there other insects that are being used? Like, can you explain that? I mean, you mentioned that sometimes... Th- like there's the gold rush in California with the bee? With the almond pollination, yeah. So so because of that, you have a few different strains that have become more favored. Um, the Italian strain, or Apis mellifera lagustica, is, is one here. California is very Mediterranean climate. Italy's in a you yeah, know, Mediterranean sense. climate. So that's really a preferred bee coming out of the West Coast. But then you have all these northern states like the Dakotas that have massive honey production and you know sweet clover um, honeys and all these various things. They may need a really good cold weather bee, but now because of this almond pollination, a lot of folks are trucking their bees over to this quote unquote gold rush, which it's good and bad. I mean, it really gives beekeepers an opportunity to to make some revenue mm-hmm. um, at a time of the year when normally their bees would not be doing anything or, you know, would be under, would be buried in snow. And, but then again, it's, and it's, you know, providing an awesome community service. I mean, they're pollinating food that's going to feed people. But on the other hand, it's such a concentrated area over over a short amount of time and you get a lot of transference of various issues that then these beekeepers take home and give out. So um, in terms of the breeding, now you have these sort of family businesses that have really made names for themselves. They've become very large scale and they have a lot of responsibility. I mean, I, I've learned from some of these larger scale folks and so their challenges are not are not easy, mm-hmm. you know, and they they care about the stock that they're producing, but they also have a lot of beekeepers who are relying on them, who have a lot of farmers who are relying on them, who have a lot of humans who are relying on them for food, right? Yeah. And so um, in order to keep their numbers up, you know, there's 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 been a switch. I think in 2008 maybe was the first year that they really figured out that um, pollination income stream had now superseded honey production or money Amazing. from honey production, honey revenue. So there's no other insect besides a bee that's used? Well, no, I shouldn't say that. So there's there's alfalfa leafcutter bees also do some work. Oh, okay. Um, there's Bob's blue orchard bees. There's but they're all bees. bees. Those are all bees. There's also, I mean, when you look pollinators in general, that also includes flies, wasps. Um, it even includes some, you know, mammals such uh-huh. as, you know, possums and things like that. Right. Um, it includes ants. It includes, you know, all these little things that can, that can move pollinators around, including humans to a uh-huh. certain degree. And so the ones that have become the most, I would say, commercially available, honeybees are right up there at the top. Then next would probably be some form of mason bee, whether that's blue orchard bee or alfalfa leaf cutters, combination thereof. And those are gaining a little bit more momentum, bumblebees as well. But we don't have a lot of production of those in our own country. So a lot of them are imported in. And that's where we had this issue with this Isle of Wight disease way back when, where things are coming and going and we're not really recognizing how these things are transferring, what effect are they having on each other? Yeah. And that really kind of brings it back out to the broader picture. Like how does the environment shape the nutrition? How does that shape the genetics or the DNA or the behavior? And all these things kind of come together. And in that sense, it's really, that's where I kind of start to go down this rabbit hole of, okay, queen breeding. What are these individual bees, these seeds, right, that have been shaped by millennia, that have been, you know, exposed to all these different things, and they have this whole history, this whole story stored up inside of them that 
can behave in different ways depending on where they are. I love the concept of seed saving. And then mm-hmm. you've said now it's, what was the program called? I call it Bees as Seeds. Okay. So did you create that? <laughs> I kind of did. I think, you know, there's, and it's just my version of trying to explain to people, okay, what is it that makes this bee different than another bee? Because I mentioned there's the different subspecies. Since we haven't brought a lot of new stock in, um, there's been the melting pot situation, but also now American bees, because we have, you know, very distinct sort of um, larger scale operations, operations and not a lot of them who are mass producing these queens because they're required, you know, then we have added inbreeding going on too. So it really became apparent as, wow, just like with plants, or just even as humans, right? We each have our own, we're our own little kernel. And then as we, we grow and develop, we can really sort of demonstrate what our true properties are. And so I first started being really selective of the bees I had because I wanted bees that would do good in Michigan and New Mexico. Okay. I also wanted bees that would be able to handle, you know, my little migratory loop. And I used to even take some down to southern New Mexico where my mother was living for mesquite honey and, you know, an earlier spring and things like that. Even with these bigger producers who are trucking their bees cross country, now that's the same thing they need too. They need bees that are adaptable, right? Sadly, because we've had, I mentioned the four P's, Mm-hmm. the poor forage pests pathogens and pesticides because of that you have these the stock who you know was healthy is now maybe not necessarily able to be reared healthy because of these added stressors and while we all need these added stressors to sort of as they say whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger type thing if you have too many at once it can really kind of just be overwhelming gotcha yeah what's the future of bees look like i mean you're doing your part uh, and <laughs> i think that i want to look really optimistically and believe that all of these problems will be fixed and we'll figure it all out. Is that? I think, I think we'll figure it all out because we have to in some way, shape or form Um, as to how we figure it out. That's going to be really interesting. I think my small drops in a big bucket are just like everybody else is fueled from an observation and then me recognizing a need and me going, okay, I'm going to try and work on that. But I also consider myself a student for life, not only of of this, what I call artistic science and scientific art, but just of being a human in general. And I, you know, even though I'm learning as I'm going along, you know, after 22 years, I decided, wow, I really, there's only so much I can learn on my own. I really want to learn from a a good team. And that's what inspired me to, to go back to grad school. And I was lucky enough to be able to go to um, the Shepherd Honeybee Lab at Washington State University. Can you tell us a little bit about what they're up to? I know there's some really huge projects up there. Yeah. So I'll start off first with their breeding program Uh because that's what, you know, enticed me over there. Basically, about 20 some years ago, Dr. Shepard had a very similar idea, which was I'm going to try and get these different bees from the various producers and see which ones can acclimate to the Pacific Northwest conditions and that can survive year to year. And so he started selecting for what he calls his program queens a little over 20 years ago. And then that sort of broadened into, wow, you know, beekeepers are really needing more diversified genes. He had had some grad students and and he as well had been doing some research into endemic strains, meaning where honeybees are native to. And then that in comparison to the bees that we have in various places and and here in the U.S. And he saw that within the queen producers, the ones who are responsible for making the majority of these bees that everybody is lining up to get and needing, that there was not very much what you call allele diversity, genetic allele diversity. And so he thought, let's see if we can bring in some what we call OW, old world stock, 
to the new world, this being the new world, uh-huh. and bring in stock that is already familiar with some of these pests and pathogens that our bees here in the States are, are coming in contact with. And maybe by integrating in some of these, some of these resilient strains that can get out there to, to beekeepers and really help them. So Amazing. he started doing that collection trips, I think, starting in, I believe, maybe... 2004 and then it just continued every few years so he's gotten stock from he's gotten apis mellifera um, caucasica which comes from the caucus mountains in eastern europe those are actually a colder weather bee and they're very dark colored black almost and then he's also gotten some apis mellifera lagustica the italian strain he's gotten apis mellifera palmanella is one of the newer strains which are from the mountains in kagestan and they're really known for being productive with apples and because Amazing. washington produces so many mm-hmm. apples and I'm hoping to bring some of those here because New Mexico produces some really lovely Definitely. apples. Yeah. So it really, um, that's that's their breeding program. And then now they've started this whole germplasm bank. So they do cryopreservation. So kind of like that that interesting seed bank that's in Norway. Yes. They have that now for um, various sorts of livestock, so to speak. But WSU started their own for honeybees. And now the um, American Honeybee Germplasm Program is going on by the USDA. And so it's a, it's a way to preserve germplasm. And so basically that means they just freeze the sperm. And then they're able to thaw it out and do inseminations and then get back to the, to the stock at hand. So that's and, a security uh, it is for the industry too, right? It is. And also, I mean, it's amazing because it's, again, you're saving seed. And so if you could all of a sudden go, wow, I, w- I wonder what bees were like, you know, 50 years ago, 100 years ago. And they can pull these things out, you amazing. know, as time moves forward. And I, I sat on the fence for many years as to whether were inseminations necessary. Do we need that much human manipulation involved? And you know, I have such big mitts, so I always thought it wasn't necessarily something I would look into. But as I, as my breeding evolved and I ended up with a few strains that I really do not want to lose. Uh-huh. And as a small producer, I can only produce so much. You know, part of it's by choice and part of it's by circumstance. Yeah. How can I share this with more people? And so doing ins- inseminations, that's actually a, an additional tool that can help to share these with other producers elsewhere who can then make some more with them. Amazing. So it's a tool. It's not an answer, but it's definitely a valuable tool. And then our lab actually does the really cool work with Paul Stamets and oh, yes. Dr. Nicholas Nager and Dr. Jennifer Hahn. And they they are the postdocs in our lab who are working on the the fungi tinctures. And so there's particular strain of polypore that they're using to make a tincture. I call it a tincture, but I guess it's a tea, a mushroom tea that they're able to give to, to bees. And it's demonstrating some antiviral properties as well as sort of an immune booster. And then they're also looking at the mycelium. Dr. Jennifer Hahn is the, is the plant scientist with this group. And she is looking at rearing a strain of, a, of this fungus that can actually then attack the mites that live in the bees. So Perfect. it attacks the mites, but not the bees themselves. Uh-huh. And it's something that the bees would come in contact with naturally anyways, but it's a matter of how to get it to really sort of be cultivated such that it could be used. And it's, it's a more natural sort of ecosystem that you're promoting for I'm so for interested the in that. Yeah. And they're also working for other insect problems, like within gardens and things like certain fungi that will... Oh, that like cleans up uh, toxic residues? Well, there's the bioremediation, but yeah. also certain fungi that live off of insects so if there's an ant problem 
There's yep. certain fungi they can put out into the environment. And Paul Stamets has patents on some of these exactly. things. It's yeah. amazing. I'm hoping that this yeah. is what the future holds because... I do too. That's the way it's meant to be. I mean, the fungi are out there. There's millions and millions of type that we don't even know. That's right. And we know for sure that the chemicals are causing huge problems. For sure. For sure. And I think that's what... For me, looking at the bee issue, you know, what you asked, what is the future of bees and do I see it being positive? I do. I see things needing to change. First and foremost, you can't keep anything alive if they don't have good nutrition. That goes across the board for any organism. And so I think that that's where a lot of critical attention is being directed, thank goodness, and is also continuing to drum up more interest with people. You know, I call it flower power. I mean, if you think about the sun, it itself is this, you know, starlight, right? And it's shining down and it's hitting these petals and it's hitting these flowers, which then in turn are transforming this this starlight into liquid starlight, into nectar. And then you have these beings of light, these bees that are coming and gathering this liquid starlight. And so it's it's very lit up. I love it. That's so cool. Luminescence. Well... I think everybody who learns about bees is really amazed at what they're doing, the complexity of it. Mm -hmm. And I guess with that research, from the little bit that I've read, they're discovering that bees are, they already knew what they were doing. Pretty much. It's just humans are finally able to quantify and understand it. And there are some humans who really want to quantify it. Like they want to know how and why and can we measure that and what does that mean? And there's a part of me that's very inquisitive in that sense, but I'm also a very intuitive type of interactive person, you know, going by feel, by by the, all of my senses sort of combined, not just through math and, and statistics. Um, and so I really think that it takes both the artist and the aesthetic and the scientist and the wild and free, all these versions kind of coming together to really sort of make sense. I call this consilience, which is mm-hmm. really the term that I'm, I use a lot now. I'm a big promoter of consilience, which just means unification of knowledge or multidisciplinary approaches. And I feel like my return to to grad school at this point in time is really at a very good time in my life because I think if I had pursued it right after Peace Corps or something, I would have probably been pigeonholed into one particular thing. Whereas now, because of my interactions, I really see how integrative things are, at least with our whole food system and with agroecology in general, that I'm I'm involved in it in that sense. And we talked about this mm-hmm. briefly earlier, sort of off mic, but I'll bring it up now that, you know, is are these efforts a form of social justice? And yes, yes, they are. I really, I really firmly believe that they are. And and it's going to take more of those to make it positive. When we talk about some of these issues that we're facing, you know, WSU is also looking at, they have grad students looking at using activated carbon cool. um, for absorbing pesticides in mm-hmm. bees. We have, yeah, all sorts of stuff using cold storage. So, you know, just like bees over winter, under snow, they need that dearth period. Some of them do, if that's uh-huh. their genetic makeup, right? And so if we can put them into cold storage and give them breaks, like how can that affect the varroa levels? Can we bring those down? Can we? What are these various things that we can do without using a lot of synthetic sort of additional cocktails Brilliant. that might, might later on have a negative effect? You know? I'm so glad to hear that all these things are going on. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm really proud of my lab. I think they're awesome people. And Dr. Shepard is him and Dr. Hopkins and Sue Colby. They're just wonderful people to work with. And I think they don't, 
speak up as much as they probably should, but that's because their head is deep into the research. Like they yeah. really are very motivated. Dr. Shepard really likes to do things that can be field tested and work with collaborators, work with beekeepers and farmers in the field because to him, you know, I can't speak for him, but it's, it makes sense that what does it mean if it's not helping, if it's not working, if it's not functional, you know, that's how I and feel. that involves community. So it takes a community to raise bees. That's another one of my little cliches I like to throw. I like throw it. There. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it also, I think for anybody who is learning about things and particularly like, you could, like with my podcast, if they're specifically interested in bees, you know, now you've just opened the door up to so many more leads for them, for them to further their own studies and see yeah. where they're specifically interested yeah, I mean, if I had never been exposed to beekeeping as a Peace Corps volunteer, I don't think I would have found this career path. So it's all about exposure and what you get sort of introduced to. You know, through the bees, they've invited me into this more magnificent universe of various pollinators, of products with pollinators, including, you know, like everything from beeswax and candles to um, apotherapy and using stings as medicine or mead. And there's even a whole branch of the sound of the bees being used for frequency healing and things like that and so it's really I think exciting at frightening times you know but definitely much more exciting because the future really is ours as to how are we going to maintain it and also conserve it you know and I think there's definitely a lot that people can do and, and first it starts with just rebuilding habitat. How long does it take and how did, what is the process because I mean and what, what state is everything in now? With bees? Yeah. I, well, I would say it's very hopeful because you have more research and funding, at least money has gone towards that, which are helping people to look at these things. There's more cross-collaboration, which is really awesome, and even internationally, which is even better, you know, because there's global implications here and things we can learn from each other. And that kind of is what inspired me to apply for the Fulbright was that, you know, I had... I had this experience of having bees out at Christ in the Desert, and I would take my mating nukes out there and let them mate with some of the drones that are in the canyon cave pockets. And not knowing where those bees really came from, was it from you know monks who years ago used to have some, and what kind did they bring in? I'd been told were Buckfast bees, which are from Brother Adam at Buckfast Abbey in England. That's where wow. those originated from, and he did kind of similar, I would say, inspired my um, my interest in collecting different genetic strains is, you know, he went around the world collecting different ones and then came out with this one that he thought would be suitable for a variety of people in a variety of places. And there are a lot of people in Europe who really prefer this Buckfast bee and used to be able to get them very, um, I think, more prevalent in the U.S., but not so much anymore, but you can still try and find them. Or, you know, as the Spaniards came up, did bees they bring sort of dissipate into these canyon walls so that kind of put me on this whole thing about wow you know I really want to learn more about mating behavior which is my thesis is utilizing uh, RFID radio frequency identification oh. to um, put passive little stickers on the queen's backs and then I have a particular device that I collaborated with engineering students and they made this tube with an antenna so our queen can go through and as she goes to mate then it captures date and time and I can correlate that to weather and see if there's a difference between the different strains and also with shifting climate how is that affecting them and then also just you know we have this technology now that's non-invasive where we can really measure um, what what it what interesting activity these bees do so we can better support them and so 
doing that and working with the engineering students and then also having this history of, you know, where did the bees come from to New Mexico and just in general here in the States, what do we have? I decided, okay, it might be really interesting to apply for a fellowship to see if I can go and learn more about endemic strains, such that they have in Spain. Uh-huh. And then also to, you know, as a writer, I love um, capturing stories as well. And I'm, I, I'm still kind of refining my craft on that because, I, again, I think I'm a student for life because there's so many different ways to tell a story uh-huh. and so many different ways people want to hear a story and the various angles that you can come at it. So this is just a wonderful opportunity for me to go and not only combine research with cultural perspective, but also use it to capture these stories that hopefully will have people wanting to hear more. I love it. That's why I love podcasts, because once it's out there, it's out there. Mm -hmm. And so hopefully, I mean, in 10 years from now, someone will say, hey, I heard your podcast show and you got me interested in this or that. Exactly. Just it's interesting. And that's, I think, what's so neat about the social uh, media era is um, it really does allow us to connect Totally. In various ways, too, you know, that you, people did not have before. And so it's, I think, can be much more meaningful in that sense. And it's, it's almost a bigger sense of responsibility because you put it out there and it's like it's for everybody. So true. To, it's, a, to hear, it's a good accountability. Mm-hmm. And now what strains, or I should say, uh, when you go there, you, you mentioned clay. Yes. Another little short journey on historical stuff here with beekeeping. So, you know, the original honey hunters from God knows when, right? I mean, what did they use? Once they collected honey, what did they put it in? And are you talking about like literally like 10,000 years ago, humans who were looking for honey? Climbing trees and cutting down honey. And clay in itself, I should backtrack a little bit here. Before I was a beekeeper, I was a ceramicist. I was a potter. And I, it was really one of my first loves and I wanted to actually major in it when I first went off to school. And then my mother, who is my muse and my biggest um, fan had said, You'll always be able to do that. Why don't you study something, you know, that you can't really learn anywhere else? Like something in the sciences. You love science, blah, blah, blah. So I chose to do marine biology fisheries, by the way, which I'm still really fascinated with, coral reef systems. Mm. And then um, I ended up switching when I went to St. John's, and it just was this, you know, great books program, which really got me in the more inquisitive and learning how to learn frame of mind. And that's, you know, really then how... And I did pottery on the side a little bit, but I hadn't really, it it started to go into the recesses. I, you know, did Peace Corps, beekeeping, I've been focused on that. And then now that I'm in my mid forties and seeing hopefully the next half of my life, like, you know, being available to me, I want to be of service in the best way that I can, but also there's some things that I'm still really interested in that I want to learn in this life and in this lifetime. And so I, I started doing a little bit of research and found that some of the oldest cave paintings of honey hunters are using clay paints and are in caves in uh-huh. Spain. Um, honey hunters also used to use clay vessels. So clay in itself is, of course, earth. And those are some of the very first not only tools, but utensils and storage vessels were made out of clay. From the Egyptians to you know, even the Babylonians all the way to, you know, Pueblo Native Americans here in the U.S. and here in our home state. And so um, that really kind of, I, I saw this opportunity where it was like, wow, I've never really explored one of my true loves of ceramics with apiculture and where those intersect with beekeeping and beekeepers. And so um, various cultures have used clay um, vessels to even house the hives. They would make tubes, such as in Egypt and even into Morocco and Spain. 
colony would live in the tubes and then the beekeeper could just access it from the back and harvest honey. And the fact that there's these various urns and various vessels that are in pyramids and in tombs and in all sorts of places that, you know, people have stored not only their um, prized possessions, but food, honey, of course, and seeds and even seed bombs that people make with clay. Just how how interesting clay is as a material. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, you add water to it and some sunlight and some seeds. And next thing you know, you can feed a community with it. And so I really, not clay itself, but earth. Yeah. (laughs) And so just that whole connection of clay being a part of earth and part of soil. How do those all come together? Interestingly, when I applied for the Fulbright, you know, they, they require a scientific proposal. And then what's your cultural perspective? So I thought, okay, well, I definitely want to do bees and beekeepers. And I know Spain is known for their pottery. I really want to kind of retap into that and get to know that more and then see where these intersect. And are they known for their bees too? Um, like the old world bees? They do have some old world bee strains there. They're kind of at a really interesting confluence because they're right across from Northern Africa, right? Mm-hmm. So you have the strains that are in Africa that kind of come up to the Mediterranean there. Then you have Eastern Europe that's coming in from the east. And then you also have the northern part of Europe. And so, and then you have the, the coastal side, the Western Europe. And so Spain is at a really interesting confluence um, topographically of these various ecotypes that have come in and which ones have, have really sort of acclimated there. And I don't know much about them yet so i'm I'm very excited to go learn but yeah once i did the fulbright application i was informed i was a semi-finalist and then semi-finalists are invited to apply for a national geographic like enhancement award and i thought oh maybe this will double my chances i don't know but there the national geographic component is that they will provide mentorship and allow you to share your story and i thought oh this would really help me develop some more finesse and grace with with my writing and with my apiculture and with research and just um, my love of anthropology as well too how cool yeah what a fun thing to be able to do I, it's still sinking in that it's going to happen. So and I guess there, a lot of hard yeah. work too, right? Oh, yes. A lot of Ten preparation. Months. Yes. Starting November 2019 to uh, through July. That way I can get a whole awesome. bee season in there. And, and yeah. So I'll start at the lowlands and then go up to the highlands. Kind of the same that I do here in New Mexico. And my, my whole thought is I will come back and then really hoping that there'll be um, a nice ag extension position <laughs> that has my name on it or that I'm eligible for. And that way I will continue to do my bee breeding on the side, uh-huh. but then also be able to work with farmers who I really love to support and yeah, watch my children grow and, and still provide pollination for my community here. I've got two questions that are like on the back burner right now. But first question, the African bee thing, when people say the African bee. is The that, Africanized honeybees? Yeah, the Af- Africanized honeybees. What does that exactly mean? Is it a strain that's dangerous to us? Well, so they're a hybridized strain. And actually, the and this is another little historical sort of journey here. Back in the 50s, Dr. Kerr, who's based in Brazil, honeybees are not native to the Americas. But as I mentioned, they're immigrants, right? And so he saw, he thought, well, I saw these ones in Africa that were really productive. I wonder if they would do really good here in the, in the jungles of South America, more so than the European honeybee. So he actually brought some over and had them in quarantine. And But somehow or other, they swarmed out or were released or what have you. And over the years, they've just made their way all the way up through all of South America, now into Central America and into Mexico. New Mexico is really interestingly positioned in that we are at the sort of the tail end of the Rockies, right? And so when you have such a big 
monumental <laughs> sort of edifice coming down your state and your elevation really jumps up too. Africanized honeybees, which are tropical in nature, don't really do well in that environment. So once they kind of come up from Mexico and hit that mountain range, then they split. Some go towards the southeast and some go towards the west. And so because of that, we have a presence of them, but in the lower part of the state, once you start getting into higher elevation, it's a lot harder for them to, to adapt. They can because they are a subspecies, so to speak. You know, they are composed of various subspecies of bees. They can interbreed. Yeah. The, their genetics are a little bit different. They they go through their whole pupation rate a little bit faster. So they, and they're just literally imperceptibly smaller, only microscopically, can you tell, um, through morphometrics, through measuring. And so they're a little bit zippier and they can get there a little bit faster for mating in terms of the drones. And so over time, if you're in an area where they become really established, they then kind of become the dominating gene pool. And so then they can sort of take over. So I've slowly, you know, but surely been kind of retreating up and up the mountain. Not that I had an issue of it before, but it's like I have the most um, sort of control over the uh, my mating zones. Um, while I don't know every beekeeper up here in these mountains, I mean, we try to support all the various beekeepers and I try and at least remain in communication as to, okay, what kind of stocks you have, where are you bringing it in from? Because the, a lot of people are very well-intentioned and they think, oh, I want to help save the bees. I'm going to become a beekeeper. And actually there's so many more things we need before we get a bunch mm. of beekeepers all in one city, state, county area. So can you go over those really quick? Just, I mean, as a activist, I mean, if you want to do that, sure. or if not, it's fine too. What, what are the things we need? Yeah. What do we need before um, people go into like backyard beekeeping? I would say first and foremost, really become bigger advocates for habitat um, and biodiversity in general. You know, bees need a variety of blooms throughout the season obviously in winter it's a dearth but if they can have things that not just bloom in the spring but also in the summer and in the fall and you also have wherever you have a congestion of of any one organism humans predominantly but anytime they start to bring in just only one kind of bee then basically it becomes oversaturated and all of the bees are now in competition for the same forage and then they're also posing competition for non-honeybee native mm -hmm. bee species and that's not not a positive thing either you know who am i to deny anybody this opportunity to learn how to keep bees i'm, I'm not advocating that by any means but i do think that there are other ways that people can be much more supportive and there are sometimes people i don't think they you know they still have this mindset of oh well i'll just buy some put them in a box and then nature takes sure. care of it and if it were really only that easy, then we wouldn't be in this problem that we are right now, right? So yeah. it's kind of like, there. it does require a lot more homework. There are people who can put out native bee blocks, you know, and kind of promote that, keep their numbers up. And hopefully we'll see some more research coming out or just even uh, cataloging of various pollinator species that we have in our area. That's one of my future sort of visions. So I would really like to see northern New Mexico, particularly um, the Pueblos and up to, you know, the southern Colorado border really become a pollinator preserve. That would be sorts. so awesome. I, th I think so too. Oh, he just landed on me. Um, and to really work together just to be mindful of what we have here and what does that represent for all of our organisms that that we survive on. You know? I'm really curious about like the, the native bees because okay. I think people have no idea. A bee's a bee to like most people, you know? That's right. Yeah. So what exists locally i mean even in santa fe where it's so dry and there's some people with beautiful gardens but if they stopped watering their gardens they would disappear yeah so it's only down by 
you know, the rivers and the creeks that it seems like there's actually enough diversity of plants to feed bees. Is that right? Well, it definitely takes water for sure. I mean, when we put it into perspective, you know, there's over 20,000 species of bees globally. There's over 4,000 in North America. New Mexico has at least 1,400 of those. Amazing. I mean, that's, that's pretty awesome. But since a lot of them are not what we call managed, you know, colonies or they're either what you call solitary or eusocial bees. They don't necessarily, they're not social like honeybees living in a large population and, oh. and being very productive. Then they're kind of hard to monitor. You know, not everybody knows where they're at. Not everybody knows how to maintain them. I think that's that's where we're at right now with one of the bigger needs between how can science help communities is really kind of let's how can we work together to really figure out what sort of native bee species do we have what are their numbers what do we need to do to support these a lot of the native bee species are very flower specific as well they're mm -hmm. not generalist pollinators honeybees are generalists and will visit pretty much any kind of flower and also native bee species the ones that are very specific to a certain flower with changing climate if those bloom times are off how does that affect this bee's gestation period when it's underground or in its little mud tube? What if it comes out and that bloom is done? Yeah, it could be catastrophic. So all of these things are really kind of impacting how how these organisms adapt and survive. What type of quality, you know, what quality of life are they having, really? And I'm not talking about, like, vacations and cruises to the Bahamas, <laughs> but just talking about are they able to rear offspring that can survive the next stress and things like that. So there's, there's a real need for that. Xerxes Society, they do a wonderful uh, trainings on pollinator protection not only programs, but identification. And also there's the Bumblebee Watch Network as well. There's um, Crowns Bees does a lot with Mason Bees, Pollinator Paradise. They, uh, they do some work with Bob's Blue Orchard Bees and used to come down into New Mexico for monitoring those as well. So there's a few different organizations. But yeah, that's kind of, see, there's this void, I almost feel to a certain degree within our own state. Like, what can we set up regionally that really is, can help us become our own resource? Yeah, and you I know? think most people here would be very, very interested. Yeah, I, I think, think so people too. here are more connected with the land. Mm hmm and more interested in preservation in general. I agree with you. I think a lot of it has to do too with this diversity, adversity within our own landscape here, right? Oh, we yeah. have such warm days and such cold nights, you know, and it's when we see that sort of swing, you know, on the pendulum between these two, what seem very opposing traits, like how can you, I think people are more, I would say, reverent of that the fragility of life yet the resiliency of it you know like how how any little cold snap can take out your apricot totally. bloom early on right but then those years when you have it it's just glorious and amazing so it makes you very grateful i think and mm -hmm. i and i really feel that um our community here can can work together to do not only make a pollinator preserve but also look to try and increase some of our um, various native bee species that we have here so cool. Yeah. Well, and, you know, the people who have lived here, the native populations for thousands of years, mm -hmm. they have not had it easy. I mean, some people say that in Galisteo up to Glorietta, there was such a huge population, like 80,000 people or something like that. Yeah. Now, now I'm probably quoting it wrong, but at least several tens of thousands of people trading. Yeah. So maybe... Maybe they had uh, a lot of food saved up and managed the environment easily at certain points in history, but it's such a brutal climate zone here with those you know, changes in temperature and drought and 
It's amazing. It is. Well, and I think a lot of it rests in observation. I mean, the ancients, you know, and the native folks watched what the landscape was doing on its own. Where does the water want to flow? Okay, let's try and start maintaining these channels. And then the Spanish came and they, wow, these natives are so smart. Of course, you know, they had their own brutal history with each other, but there was a recognition of some point like, wow, they've been able to survive here for so long. And they've adopted and sort of even embellished on some of these ancient practices and made them into some of their own distinct customs now too with the whole acequias and the limpia each spring and the blessing of the water and and all of these things that really I just got chills kind of saying it like that at its core we all stem from these same sorts of cellular memories right mm-hmm. and it's that it's those stories these you know that are encapsulated in in a seed whether it's your your own person and you grow up in the the customs that your parents and the traditions that they teach you um, from your ancestors or just how the landscape impressed upon you and and creates you into who you are now that is so interesting because i've had many different people talking on the podcast Mm -hmm. about the way that a seed would potentially store information so clearly we're doing the same thing yeah as we live here. As we live here. For generations. So I've come to the realization that it's what I call epigenetics. It's the environment and it's the organism. And that's, it's not nature versus nurture. It's nature nurtures and tortures. <laughs> and nurtures again. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for listening. A tribe of listeners is definitely forming. And I am so grateful to you all. Please feel free to reach out to me directly or to Melanie with questions. Again, her email is ziaqueenbees at hotmail.com, and you can reach out to me via the website getinmygarden.com and via social media at getinmygarden. Share around your favorite episodes on social media if you'd like to support the show. There are several episodes planned for the next month, including special guests to talk about homesteading, foraging, wine production, and so much more. Bye for now.